Bluffers, it is another beautiful day in the Bluff City. I don't know about you, but I am loving this unseasonably warm weather that we have been having. Y'all, I'm so excited that you've decided to share some of your Saturday morning with me. I'm Sanaa, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Now, since this is our first Saturday together, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, well, of course, you've probably already guessed that I am a coffee lover. Yes, it is true. I love to have my morning cup of coffee. And you know, I have a cup of coffee with me right now. Just some drip coffee and half and half. Nothing too fancy. Um, if you too are a coffee lover, then hey, it's time to go ahead and refill your cup or get a fresh pot of coffee brewing. Um, additionally, I am a goal-setting coach, I'm an author, and I'm a professor. And most importantly, I think anyway, is I am a Memphian. Yes, I grew up here. I attended the University of Memphis for undergrad. Um, I did spend a few years away from the city as I was pursuing my PhD in sociology at the University of Maryland, but I'm so happy to be back home and to be back at my undergrad alma mater as a professor in the sociology department. Now, what this all really means is that I am deeply intrigued by our social world, right? By what's going on around us. You know, I've always had these questions about, you know, why do we do the things we do? Or, you know, just what's up with that, right? And I know that you two have a lot of these shared questions and shared curiosities. So every Saturday morning, at 9 a.m. Let's grab coffee and let's talk about it. So with everything that has happened so far in 2020, from COVID to police shootings, um, protests across the nation, social media misinformation, and of course, this election season, if you're anything like me, you've probably been trying to make sense of it all. Today's guest is an expert in racial and social inequalities with a focus in police-civilian interactions and also health. So I am so excited to welcome Dr. Rayshawn Ray to the show. Dr. Ray is a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution, a professor of sociology, and the executive director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland College Park. And if his name sounds familiar, it may be because he is a frequent contributor to a range of news media, including CNN, ESPN, The Washington Post, and so many more. And in addition to all of his work, Dr. Ray is also my mentor, my friend, and a fellow University of Memphis alum. Welcome, welcome, Dr. Ray. Dr. Laybourne, thank you for having me on. I'm so, so, so excited about this conversation. And you took all my punchlines at the end, <laughs> all our connections, but I, I look forward to talking about that. Yes, yes. So, so much has happened this year, this week, and then so much is still, you know, yet to unfold. How are you doing? You know, I think I'm doing good, um, relatively speaking. I mean, I just really try to process things as they come in and try to really have good coping strategies 
for things that I can't control. Things that I can't control, I worry about. Things that I can't control, I try not to let it get me extremely anxious. And then if I actually want to try to control something, like the outcome of the election, <laughs> then I aim to do everything I can to impact that. Not just with my vote, which is one of the main things we can do, but also through active participation, nonviolent participation in a lot of different ways through direct action, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would talk about, of course, thinking about that legacy in Memphis and kind of what being at the University of Memphis taught me about social change. Mm, yes, I love that. There is so much in there that we are going to dissect just of what you said. But of course, since you mentioned the University of Memphis and the city of Memphis as well, um, how much did your time being here in Memphis really contribute to your career path? It is unmeasurable in terms of the impact that Memphis has had on my life. So of course, I'm originally from Murfreesboro. So for people in Memphis, that'll be familiar to them. For people who aren't, that's in Middle Tennessee by Nashville. Uh, grew up in Atlanta, moved back to Murfreesboro, went to Riverdale High School, very proud of that. Came to college in Memphis. Um, became a member of Alpha Phi Alpha in Memphis. Uh, got engaged in Memphis um, <laughs> <laughs> to, to my wife, who also is a graduate from the University of Memphis. And, um, and I mean, Memphis is just something that's a very, very special place because Memphis taught me what it meant to be empowered. Mm. And the way that marginalization operates, of course, studying race and racism in America, the question that that was core for me in Memphis is how does race matter? I think most people know that it does. And most people are impacted by it. Pretty much everyone is impacted by it, whether or not you're disadvantaged or advantaged by it and have the ability to not pay that much attention to it, which I know we'll talk about. But one of the things that Memphis taught me is to really explore how race matters through structural conditions. I mean, so here we are dealing with multiple pandemics from policing to health disparities, things that really collide on the city of Memphis in a lot of different ways. But being at the University of Memphis was exactly what I needed, exactly what I wanted. It's an amazing school. Um, I'm, I just continue to be proud to be a Memphis alum and watch all of, all of our other alumni and all the things that they do go out and do their work. But I vividly remember one of the things that stands out to me, Dr. Bud Ritchie, who who left Memphis and went to work at Rose, but still in Memphis. I took a leader honors leadership course with him. And it was one of the most profound courses that I took. And then I happened to be with Dr. Carson, who for people who went to Memphis will remember Dr. Carson, VP of students before Dr. Bingham. And I was just, just happened to be part of his honors, his freshman honors group. Mm -hmm. And through both of them, I learned so much about leadership. I learned so much about what it meant to uh, to be a student, to be a scholar, and the expectations that people had of you. And then finally, Dr. Wanda Rushing, who really set the path for me for sociology, when I said, I have no idea what this is, but I think it's cool, and I think <laughs> And she sent me to Barnes & Nobles to get a U.S. News & World Report that was before we could look up things on the internet, and said, pick out schools from this list, and you're going to go to grad school and get your PhD. Wow, that is amazing. And then just to think of everything that you've done since then. Um, so I'm so happy to have you here with us today. And I know, as I mentioned in your introduction, you know, so much of your work really speaks to everything that has happened in 2020. And I love how you put it, how all of these multiple pandemics are really converging and in a very specific way, particularly in a city like Memphis. 
Um, so one of the big issues that I want to focus on um, that has defined 2020, as you mentioned, is thinking about police brutality, um, police civilian interactions. Um, obviously, we know police shootings of unarmed Black men and women have been a rallying point for another wave of Black Lives Matter protests across the country um, this year. And of course, Memphis seeing Black Lives Matter protests um, throughout this year as well. More recently, calls for defunding the police as well. Um, and at the same time, Memphis was also identified as one of the cities with an increase in violent crime. So we actually received uh, money from the Department of Justice from the Operation Legend program, um, had federal investigators allocated to our city, also have the ability to hire more police officers, right? So a lot of this attention on violent crime, reducing crime, and like many other cities, uh, Memphis Police Department budget far exceeds that of any other city department or social services. Um, so all of this, I think, is really playing into what we're experiencing here in Memphis when we think about policing, but also as we're thinking about what something else might look like, right? And that's where we see these calls for defunding the police. So what does it really mean when people say defund the police? What does that mean? What would that look like? Yeah, I think when we say defund the police, it means to reallocate funding. Uh, defund the police does not mean abolish. Um, there are people who think policing should be abolished. Mm -hmm. And obviously, as I've noted, uh, when people oftentimes try to highlight bad apples, bad apples come from rotten trees and policing. So there is validity there. But when people talk about defund the police, they mean reallocating funding. One thing you just mentioned about the city of Memphis, or I mean, you could go to Little Rock, you could go to Nashville, whatever city that you want to choose, a very large percentage of taxpayer money, because we have to be very clear when we say city budgets. That means taxpayers' money. Like, you work in the city of Memphis. Our friends and family work in the city of Memphis. That is their money, oftentimes being paid to over-police and brutalize them, and then to underserve them when they need help. So we have to be very clear about that. So part of thinking about it, my research highlights that we need to take a market-driven, evidence-based approach to defunding. What that would mean is you have a budget, 100%. Let's take the city of Chicago, for example. $1.8 billion each year in policing. In Memphis, somewhere around 30% of the policing, of the taxpayer money goes to policing, 30%. People have to decide if they're getting their re, if they're getting their due for every one out of three dollars that goes to policing. So what this evidence-based market-driven approach might look like is you look at calls for service, you look at the number of calls for service or the percentage of calls for service that have to do with violence. Nationally, nine out of 10 calls for service for police have nothing to do with violence at all. Nothing. An example of that would be in Philadelphia, where the family called three times and specifically requested ambulatory and mental health services. Police came out several minutes later. Um, another black man was shot and killed by the police who was having a, a mental health crisis and should still be alive, should actually be getting the treatment that he needs. The second thing you look at are clearance rates. Clearance rates is how successful is law enforcement in solving violent crime. You mentioned that, I mean, anyone who lives in Memphis, and I think you no, know, regardless of what people look like or what neighborhood you live in, people wanna see violence go down. No one wants violence in their neighborhoods. But what they also don't want are people being over-policed simply because they live in violent neighborhoods. Those people didn't ask for that, nor do they deserve that. So the key metric is the clearance rate. About 40% uh, of all homicides go unsolved every single year, 40%. Wow. 
nationally. Uh, it's like 70% of rapes, 70% of um, robberies, and like 50% of aggravated assaults go unsolved. So when we look at the most violent crime, how good are police actually doing at stopping the things that we don't want to have happen? Right. And instead, we see an over-policing and profiling when people haven't done anything violent. So we have to put this metric together. We have to look at the police budget. We have to see how much money is being spent. And then we have to decide, can 5, 10, 15% of the police budget be carved off and spent elsewhere? Say, some of the main models right now, social services. So can we have mental health and addiction specialists responding to those calls? You know that from the, from the work you did before you went to graduate school as a social worker. So we need those types of responses. We might also need to look at traffic stops. Most people know that when you have an accident, if you're on popular union or something and you have an accident, sometimes the police don't even come. Or sometimes they take so long to come because they're actually dealing with other calls or they put what has happened to you as a lower priority. Imagine if we had other people dealing with those particular calls. And look, I've interviewed and worked with thousands of police officers. And all of a sudden, we know that what happens with police officers and policing is the fact that other people might be better responsive to things. Yes, absolutely. I love this point of thinking of what are the other social services that we could allocate funds or allocate more funds to that might better serve our community. So thinking, of course, about mental health professionals, how important that may be, or even thinking about are there other types of services that we could create separate from, you know, quote unquote policing, right? Um, and think about, like you said, even if that's kind of traffic response or, you know, some other type of response units that are maybe trained in a different way, thinking about um, interactions with civilians in a different way other than the policing model, which is really like, how can I stop a crime or how can I, you know, what levels of force are needed in this situation? Which I, mean, I think without a cool. doubt. I mean, they're, 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 essentially doing what they're, they're essentially doing what they're trained to do. You know, that's one of the things that we really got to think about. They're doing, police are doing what they're trained to do. Police officers, when they go through the academy, they get 50 hours of firearm training, less than 10 hours of de-escalation training. That mm -hmm. should be completely flipped around. So when police officers pull a gun or get aggressive with someone, that's exactly what they've been trained to do. If we want to see a different outcome, we need to reimagine policing. And there are definitely some ways to do it. I think reallocating funding is one of the best ways to do it. The other way to do it is also dealing with funding. And that deals with civilian payouts for police misconduct. Since 2015, over $2 billion has been spent nationally on civilian payouts for police misconduct. In other words, these are incidents where a person has been brutalized to kill by the police and the court system rule now we got to think this is a court system that's already imbued with systemic racism yes so even given that that court system has ruled that the incident was unjustifiable now that doesn't necessarily correlate to police officers being held accountable but i think there is a way to do it and that's creating police department insurance policies so that the money doesn't come from taxpayer money because that's what people don't get about these civilian payouts that two billion dollars i just mentioned people should do an analysis in memphis past five ten twenty years how much money have taxpayers spent on civilian payouts for police misconduct? That's money that could be used for education and work infrastructure, because if we really want to reduce crime, which most of us do, then we want to improve education and work opportunities for people.
Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that $2 billion number is, I mean, it's unbelievable, right? So we're already thinking about how much of our tax money goes to policing on the front end, but then how much is going to it on the back end when we have the civilian payouts for police misconduct. Um, and I think that's something that you know, we don't often think about, right? Or we don't have the numbers onto it. Let's take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to get more into this idea of training. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on 91.7 FM. And we're back with Let's Grab Coffee with Sanaa. We're here with Dr. Rayshon Ray. Now, before the break, we were starting to get into this idea of police training. Um, so I'm really curious to what you think about this difference in training, right? Because I know a lot of your research with the Lab for Applied Social Science research um, is about police training, particularly around implicit bias. Could, could you tell us a little bit about your research findings there? Yeah, so what we do is at the Lab for Applied Social Science Research, we've developed a virtual reality decision-making program. So if people could think, you put virtual reality goggles on, you are immersed in a virtual world. In this world, you encounter uh, scenarios that police officers do every single day. Suspicious person calls, uh, burglaries at stores, domestic violence incidents, traffic stops. And we can measure everything from officers' attitudes to their physiological responses, their heart rates, their stress level and the like. Um, and then obviously their behaviors. Some of the things that we've discovered is first officers overwhelmingly exhibit anti-black bias shouldn't be surprising to people oftentimes what's surprising to people is that there really aren't racial differences in officers propensity to exhibit anti-black bias in other words regardless of race regardless of gender officers exhibit similar types of anti-black bias which then directly and significantly impacts their treatment of people Mm. Um, so, so that becomes very, very important. So when it comes to implicit bias trainings, what do we do? Look, we've done, I mean, geez, I've done dozens and dozens of these trainings. I mean, probably close to a hundred with police departments and police officers around the country, corporations, universities, you name it. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things that came out of that is these trainings matter, but they don't matter in a vacuum. Mm. They don't matter alone. They need broader organizational and structural policy changes to come along with it. You can't simply go on, go in and do a two hour training. I mean, first off, that does nothing. Even the two day trainings that we do can't really be impactful unless the specific recommendations we're providing are implemented throughout the organization. And then there are accountability metrics in place to hold officers accountable for what they do. One big one are, is dealing with civilian mm -hmm. oversight boards. Mm -hmm. So Nashville has the main model. Um, their civilian oversight board in Nashville, not only do they get funding from the city, but they also have votes on the internal police misconduct board. That is so, so key. If, if you have a civilian oversight board, community oversight board, and you don't have a vote on the misconduct board, you're simply symbolic. You're having no impact at all. Even though the chief and the mayor might be excited, they're doing that because they know what you're doing doesn't matter. You're just spinning your wheels. Instead, what you want is civilian representation to create accountability, equity, and transparency, because not only will that equalize and ensure that officers are held accountable for how they treat people, but it will also ensure internally in the police department that there's transparency and that minority officers and women officers are not sanctioned more than white male officers, which is something that my research has highlighted as well. 
Wow. So I think what you just said was so key because of course in cities around the nation and then also here in Memphis, we have this new kind of reimagining policing in Memphis advisory council um, happening all this month, trying to get information from community members, right? Trying to get that input on what would more equitable policing look like? What do communities need? What do they want? Um, But what you just said, something I never even thought about is what levels of input do these advisory councils members potentially have or these, you know, civilian oversight. And so having that vote is once again, so key to actually seeing some sort of substantive change. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, look, if people haven't seen this week, while voting is important, most people that have ever voted, uh, Biden actually broke President Obama's record for voter turnout, or in terms of the number of votes received, um, over 70 million. I mean, this is amazing. And this is what happens when democracy is supposed to be working for everybody, despite some of the barriers we've seen, even in Memphis, where people have showed up to the polls with Black Lives Matter shirts on and they were turned away when they shouldn't have been. We know we got to continue to fight. We need to restore the Voting Rights Act that needs to be named after John Lewis. But when it comes to voting, it's so key. And when it comes to policing, I've served on a lot of these different boards in various capacities, from selecting police chiefs to being on these oversight boards to make changes. And I see where the gaps are. I see where the barriers are. And oftentimes these things are smoke and mirrors and they're not really trying to have an impact, which is why I scaled up my work to start working at the state and federal level, because those are the places where things need to change. Like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, people should pay attention to that moving into 2021 on whether or not we get that passed through the Senate, given what's happening with the Senate essentially being split and not switching from Republican to Democrat all the way. So these are some of the outcomes that we need to be focusing on. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And you mentioned about voting um, and obviously thinking about police civilian interactions, police brutality being a key um, election um, issue, a key voting issue. How much did thinking about crime and safety factor into the vote? I mean, it was huge. So if we think, if we look at exit polls, And we look at the reasons why people voted Republican versus Democrat. If a person voted Democrat, they ranked racial inequality as the number, as the most important issue for their vote, 36%. Coronavirus was second, 27%. Right there, we already have like two, basically two thirds of people who voted Democrat. They were either caring about dealing with racism or dealing with coronavirus. If a person voted Republican, it was the exact opposite. Not only did they rank the economy number one, well over 60%, but they ranked crime and safety number two, 17%. You put that together, that was about 80% of people who voted Republican either said the economy or crime and safety. Clearly, Trump's messaging worked there. And then here goes the kicker though. Only 8% of people who voted Republican total, 8% total, said coronavirus or racial inequality. That speaks to the divide in our country, and it's not solely about race. A large part is about race, but it's not so. And when I say it's not about race, I mean people's own racial biography and racial dyna- uh, racial demographics. Because Trump actually increased his vote among Latinos and Black people, particularly Black men. Now, in the grand scheme, Black men are much less likely to vote Republican than, than say white men. But look, nearly 20% of black men, based on the evidence we have now, and we'll continue to gather it, voted Republican, which was up from 2016. In 2016, one out of six college educated black men voted for Trump. 
that might have actually increased. So, so the fissures we're seeing in America, although race is a large part of it, is more about people's racial ideologies. You, you know, Dr. Laybourne, you know this from your work. It's about racial ideologies and how people think about race. Mm-hmm. And for too long, we've assumed that Black people or Latino people or Asian people think similarly about race. And we're seeing when it comes to Blacks and Latinos that that is not the case, that there are some important fissures that people think about. And I think moving forward, particularly as the Asian population continue, as, particularly as the Asian population continues to increase and diversify, we'll start to see fissures there because people who are from India, as we're gonna you know, see in some ways with Kamala Harris, is not the same as people from Korea, China, or Japan. And there are assumptions made about people's racial ideologies, how they think about the economy, how they think about the American dream. So look, I mean, the next administration has a lot of work to do to, uh, to heal America. Unsure if it'll happen in four years. Um, I think we're going through a political um, a political reformation. That's important. The last time we really went through this was right before the civil rights movement. And I'll just quickly highlight this because of Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy in, in Memphis. And I recently spoke virtually at the uh, Civil Rights Museum. And it was just an honor because I remember being in college in Memphis and, you know, pledging and crossing Alpha Phi Alpha at Memphis, Kappa Eta Chapter, and <laughs> going down and marching from the slave auction block that used to be there to the Lorraine Motel mm-hmm. and the empowerment I felt like. One of Alpha's main programs is a voteless people is a hopeless people. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing is that voting really matters. You have to be sitting at the table. And with that being said, when it comes to moving forward in America, there are a series of fissures to be dealt with. And a hundred, well, close to a hundred years ago, black people started shifting from Lincoln's Republican Party to, to Kennedy's Democratic and Lyndon Johnson's Dem, uh, Democratic Party. And so we have to be very clear that this has happened before. And I think we're seeing shifts with Latinos. We're seeing shifts with Blacks. Part of what people are saying is, honestly, is we need more than two political parties. But they're also saying that we want to see more diversity across the board. And I think that's happening with candidates. And now we want to see it at the top. And I think that's going to happen um, in this next administration. Yes. We brought up so many important points there, but especially thinking about um, you know, voting by race, right? Not thinking about it as a monolith, as we've seen, especially with the Latino vote, um, you know, the differences in, you know, white passing Latinos, and of course, a big attention um, being put on Florida with Cubans in Florida, right? And so how that shifts, we're thinking about the quote, Latino vote, right? There is no one Latino vote. And even as you mentioned, among Asian Americans, and I think you hit the nail right on the head with Kamala Harris, how might we be thinking about the Asian American can vote differently, which we already know Asian American, um, so many different ethnic groups with different racialized experiences in the US, right? And that East Asian American experience, as you mentioned, being very different from Southeast Asian Americans. And we know the differences in income, socioeconomic status that often parallels with voting records as well. Um, So in thinking about the vote, um, could you speak a little bit more about reasons why we may have seen these shifts, particularly among Black men voters and this increase in support for Trump? Yeah, well, I I think, I mean, to your point, I mean, look, when we talk about Latinos, this is the difference between being Cuban, Puerto Rican, and Venezuelan being in Florida and Mm -hmm. oftentimes passing for white compared to being Dominican or Puerto Rican in New York and people assuming that you're Black and then being 
from being Mexican or being from South and Central America, being in DC or California, Arizona and the like. With black men, um, there are a few things going on. The first thing is that Trump represents a um, form of hegemonic masculinity and rugged individualism that black men and Latino men aim to enact, but oftentimes cannot embody. Mm. We have to be very clear about that. From the way that Trump treats women, from the way that he commands respect and deals with the economy, the fact that he doesn't hardly pay anything in taxes, even though I think that's really about to hit his head over the next several years. Mm -hmm. But we have to be very clear about that. That is similar to working class white people voting against their interests. Like, like we have models for what this looks like. Right. And this is an example of minority men voting against their family's own self-interest because of a sense of rugged individualism that men have been socialized to enact. I think that's, that's a big part of it. I think the other thing, though, is that Trump did such a good job of messaging, um, talking about socialism to Latinos. Like people from Cuba, that hit them. Like we have to be very clear that that's something that they heard and resonated with them. And then he has surrogates who were running as Republicans who are Latino, who have won, who were backing him. That's very key. Same thing with black people. I mean, in, in Michigan, the, the, the Republican senator or the Republican Senate candidate is black. And that is like such, such a close, case, uh, close race, even though, you know, for the most part, it's being called going to the Democratic side. But bottom line is that I think that's what it's about. I mean, look, we can get on religiosity and conservatism. Look, black women and Latinas are conservative and religious as well. Um, that didn't necessarily lead to their overwhelming support for Trump, even though the number of black women who voted for Trump did increase. It, it doubled, which is crazy to say. And when we say double, that sounds like a lot. It went from four to eight percent. So there's something going on there for black men, though. It was well over double that close to 20 percent of black men. And I would expect that for college educated black men who are high earners, mm. even more so, because now we get into not just the thinking about the little wanes of 50 cents of the world, we could talk about whether or not they got paid in this list <laughs> that I've seen with them on and all that, you know, we get into all that. The bottom line, though, is that, look, if you make under $400,000 a year, Biden's plan, tax plan will help you. Right. If you don't, then if you make over that, then you're in the 1% of 1%. And for too long, a lot of people perceive that you've been getting away with tax breaks that you shouldn't, like Trump paying $750 a year, which for most of us or most people in Memphis, say, who making $30,000 a year, $25,000 a year, you pay more than that in taxes in a month or two. So let's be very, very clear about the implications of what's going on. But yeah, I mean, for Black men, it's a troubling pattern for Democrats who want to hold on to them. But what I also think black men are saying, and it goes final point I'll make on this, Trump's messaging to black men was, was really solid about Biden. He was saying, yeah, you call me a racist. Whatever, fine. I don't think I am. I, I, like personally, I think he is. But <laughs> Trump was saying, I don't think I am. And I think it's a lot of evidence I could talk about and I've written about. But then Trump was also saying, Biden's racist too. So right. if you're not voting for me because I'm racist, then you shouldn't vote for Biden either. So what that meant for people whose messaging that connected to, then they, that race, racism got canceled out. Mm. It became a non-factor. Like, you know what I'm saying? If, if two right. people have the same flaw, then it's not a big deal. Now, to me, there are some extremely important nuances because I don't think Biden is racist. And this is the bottom line for me. 
Biden believes systemic racism exists. Mm-hmm. He's been willing to admit past wrongs and flaws in the 1994 crime bill. I've written about that. People can see that at Brookings because it's more complex than that because 60% of black people supported that and the CBC supported that. We got to be very, very clear about right. that. So that's one of the reasons why Biden moved forward with it. But Biden believes systemic racism exists. Trump does not. That should tell us all we need to know. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I like how you really keyed in on Trump's effectiveness in his messaging. So even thinking about the stats that you shared earlier with um, Trump voters being really concerned about the economy, right, that weighing in into their decision to vote for him, um, not so much the importance of, you know, race or racism and not so much the importance of coronavirus, right? So again, thinking about how key that messaging has been. And so I do want to take a shift and talk about coronavirus because I know that you're an expert when it comes to health and thinking about health disparities. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get more into what coronavirus means for the Mid-South. This is Let's Grab Coffee with Sanaa on 91.7. Thanks for joining us. This is Let's Grab Coffee with Sanaa. We're here with Dr. Rayshon Ray, and we're talking about health, of course, coronavirus, and what it means for Memphians. So again, 2020 being very much characterized by our approach to coronavirus or, you know, us ignoring coronavirus on a national level. Um, So people are, we have seen a lot of people talk about this next wave, or maybe we're still in the first wave of coronavirus um, this winter, right? With people being pushed indoors, with, you know, flu season coming as well. Um, So what are some of these, how should we be thinking about mitigating risk when we're in regards to coronavirus, um, and then also thinking about in a city like Memphis as well, again, thinking about the effects in metropolitan areas of the coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, coronavirus has hit uh, Black communities, Latino communities, urban communities, rural communities now, low-income communities in ways that we haven't seen. And this is the bottom line. Coronavirus is an equal opportunity virus, but our healthcare system in our society is far from equitable. So that means the distribution by which coronavirus has its impact is going to be different. Everybody can't go to Walter Reed Hospital in, you know, in Bethesda, mm-hmm. uh, right outside of D.C. like Trump and get experimental drugs and then pop out a few days later and seem like he's OK. For a lot of black people, they're dying. And one thing that I've been saying about coronavirus from the start since it really hit, people know this because I learned this saying in Murfreesboro and Memphis, that when America catches a cold, Black people get the flu. Well, in 2020, I've added on to that saying, in 2020, when America catches coronavirus, Black people die. Mm. And so moving forward, look, people have to realize this is real. Over 100,000 people are catching coronavirus every day. That's the most cases we've had in a single day since this started. In other words, coronavirus is not getting better. It's getting worse because it's getting colder. People are more likely to be indoors. People want to see family. I get all of that. I want to see my mama too. I want to see my grandma too. But I also want to protect them. And I've heard of too many mothers and grandmothers dying because their kids and grandkids wanted to see them. And for me, that's just not a risk that I'm willing to make because I want to have multiple days to see my loved ones rather than just one more. And we have to be very clear about that. So of course we need to wear masks. For Thanksgiving and Christmas, look, I get you want to see your people. But if it's not warm enough to be outside and be six feet apart and potentially you bring your own food as well, 
then you just shouldn't do it. Um, that's the bottom line. I mean, coronavirus. Now, now, with that being said, black people are just overexposed. People in Memphis are just overexposed because of urbanicity, because mm -hmm. of the type of jobs black people work. Black people are more likely to work essential jobs. So we know that low income people are more likely to work essential jobs, more likely to be in densely populated neighborhoods, and then less likely to have health care access. This is the reason why the Affordable Care Act is so important. The Affordable Care Act decreased the uninsured black population by um, by 50 percent. Mm -hmm. That was huge. So when we talk about these outcomes, they're real. And, you know, the bottom line is this is the key stat for people. Um, not only is it that black people and Latinos are about two to three times more likely to die than whites, but if black people and white people had the same mortality rate for COVID-19, there would be nearly 25,000 fewer black people dead this year. Wow. 25,000. Like, this is real. This is nothing to play with. And so, you know, look, what I hope is that, because look, I don't know about anybody else, but for me, the few times we have been around people where, you know, my, my youngest son or my oldest son want to go see their best friend. Like, like you can't control those environments once you get there. <laughs> As you look up, they playing tackle football. I'm like, hold up, what just happened here? And the masks are like down. And they, I mean, they're being kids and even adults. You get to hanging out with your friends and they bring you over a red silo cup. And they like, hey, this this your fave right here. And next thing you know, you three drinks in, like eating from the same nacho tray. Like, <laughs> no, don't do that. You know, so so for for us, and and I know this acutely because you know, sometimes you know, my my wife is a healthcare provider. She runs her own health clinic, and she sees so many patients who are being impacted by this. Like, it is nothing to play with. And you know, I just hope that for our Memphis family, that they just you know, meaning like Memphis City that people just realize the gravity of this, be the responsible one in your family, get mad at your family, but make, make them get mad at you. It's okay, because they're gonna love you for protecting their life when you get to see them six or 12 months down the road. Right, absolutely. Now thinking about everything you said, I know there have been um, vaccines in development. I think most recently we've seen a pause in a lot of the development of vaccines. Um, but how will, let's say a vaccine is approved? Again, thinking about that difference in health treatment and health availability, particularly among minoritized communities, how will that impact um, the use or availability of a vaccine? Yeah, well, look, it's two parts of this vaccine story on your front uh, that you just asked. So, I mean, scientists are making a lot of headway with the vaccine. There are two key things I want people to bear in mind on the timeline. The first is that there haven't been fully extensive what we call randomized control trials. This is where you take two groups of people, you give all of them think they, get, they got the drug, but some of them didn't, some of them did, and you can monitor over time the long-term implications of this. To go back in time, there was a 1957 flu outbreak that really led to us having a flu vaccine today. Most people don't know that. Like, it's kind of crazy because it happened in the middle of the civil rights movement. So like <laughs> nobody, nobody remembers. Like the flu didn't even make it. It's kind of like in 2020, how, how those murder hornets, I know they were trying to make comeback, whatever that was. Like they not even, they not even, they don't even have their own chapter, right? It's so I, much stuff. I have hope for the murder hornets. There's still time for they, them to they, come they, back. They might, they might come back. I mean, they, we did see, that they did make a reappearance, right? They're kind of like the thing in the 2020 movie that you're gonna be like oh shoot the murder horn is back out oh. you know that's what happened in 2020 and so one thing we know about a vaccine is we haven't had proof of concept yet and so 
people need to bear that in mind and, and just in making their decisions. Second thing is, even when we do have a vaccine that's ready for distribution, it has to be brought up to scale, meaning you're going to have to have millions of vials created. And the way I want people to think about this is just, just be aware that part of what might happen is similar to the creation of any product. Some of them might be defective. That's okay, meaning like what they come in. And for the most part, healthcare providers would deal with that. But I say the distribution part might take just as long as the creation part. And then the final part of that is, look, minority communities have every reason to be skeptical of vaccines. But with that being said, it is important for us to be part of that process. We don't want to be guinea pigs when we talk about Tuskegee, when we talk about the, the, the Guatemalan syphilis study. There are several that we could highlight. But we want to be sitting at the table. We want to ensure that we're represented. We want to ensure that our communities are going to be included. Now, if things are rolled out the way they're supposed to, which I think they will, um, frontline workers will get them, mm -hmm. right? Whether that be healthcare providers, then we go to service workers, we go to teachers, we go down the line, right? Um, but I do think people should participate in that because if the vaccine works, even because this is the other thing, we also don't know what percentage is going to be effective yet. Right. It could be 20, 30% effective. But bottom line is a mask, we know, is 70 to 80% effective at preventing you from getting it. So just keep that in mind as people move forward. But I definitely think, and I look, I get people's skeptability about whether or not they're going to be on the front line to get the vaccine or the back line. <laughs> look, I get that. Too long we've been on the front line mm -hmm. um, being forced to do things. So people should make up their own minds. But I also want people to realize that this is an important step in the scientific process to making sure that people get healthy. Right, absolutely. And we have to keep our communities healthy. We've seen in Memphis a continuing rise of new coronavirus cases. And so we want to do our part in wearing our masks and trying to keep ourselves and those around us in our communities safe as well. So we've covered a lot of ground today, and I actually want to close with something you started with in the beginning, because I think it's so key. You said you have a lot of different coping mechanisms to help you kind of handle everything that has been 2020, right? So could you share with us what some of those internal coping mechanisms are? Yeah. First thing I do is um, I try to make sure I talk to or see the people who I love and who I know love me. For the most part, it's kind of easy in my house because it's my kids. And oftentimes they don't care what I have to do at work. Um, <laughs> you know, like during our during this interview, they don't popped in two, three, four times talking about stuff. You know, like, daddy, I just did it. You know, just did it. I mean, th those kind of things not only help you stay young, but they help you stay grounded. And the second part of that is I try to talk to the funniest people that I know every single day. I have some okay. really, really funny friends. Dr. Laybourne, you know, because we're part of a group of some really, really funny people. And they make me laugh every single day. And that's important to do. You have to laugh. Next, I try to eat healthy. Now, for me, you know, look, we have a set of resources where I've been in the house the whole time. I get that work from home. But my eating habits got horrible because I'm at home with the kids. They don't eat all their chips. Oh, shoot, the classic Lay's. Oh, yeah, I'm about to go in on the classic Lay's. Dude, I, need, I need all that grease and all that. Like, no, no, I can't do that, right? Oh, oh, some cookies. Oh, it's an extra cookie, a brownie. Oh, yeah, I'm going to eat that. So I literally started doing meal delivery because mm. it helps me to organize because I don't have time to cook. I, and I'm figuring out at my age, I don't even like to cook. It's like, 
I just don't like it's just not what I do. It's certain things I'm realizing that I'm hitting 40. I'm like, I don't like to do that. I don't know why I acted like I did. I do like making drinks, which is a problem during COVID. I'm like, dude, you got to stop making so many drinks. Got to roll off that. But the, the meals are key. I structure my meals. I also structure my day like normal if I'm working from home. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing, I exercise. And um, it's really, really important to keep this process to, to structure things and to aim to balance your life. And if something becomes too much, remove it from yourself. And, you know, I, I can't stress those things enough. I do. Look, my work is stressful. I study policing and health disparities. I tell people, if you've heard of me or you've seen me, that means a lot of black people dying. Like, I'm, I'm just I'm just going to be real about that. So I like I don't ever get excited about doing some of the things I do. People are like, Ray, why are you so serious? I'm like, I'm talking about police shooting somebody. I don't, I don't, I didn't know I was supposed to smile when we talk about that, which is why on my coping side, as you know, I, I like to have fun. I, I watch a lot of movies. I laugh at people. I laugh at things. I laugh at people and laugh at things. So part of that is just trying to have a balance in my life. And, you know, I can't stress those coping strategies enough, like do what you can control and try to remove everything else. Right. Absolutely. And just by way of kind of leaving our listeners um, with kind of your main takeaway. So thinking about everything we talked about today from police brutality, um, thinking about voting, also thinking about health and coronavirus. um, What should people really be taking away from this conversation? If they only had a few, you know, key takeaways that they are stuck with and really latch onto, what would those be? Things a few things. And I, I posted these quotes recently on Instagram because that's where my mind was. First is when it comes to elections, every election is determined by the people who show up. Larry Sabato said that. Second, the vote is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have. John Lewis said that. I think we've seen that. And then when it comes to self-care, don't allow anyone or anything to steal your joy today. So many of the things we do are joy killers, joy stillers. I refuse to let the things that are happening in the world steal my joy, steal what I enjoy doing, who I like being around. And if that means FaceTiming with my mom, my grandma, if that means doing a family Zoom, I'm going to do that to try to have that joy. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Ray, thank you so much for being here with us today. And thank you for all of the information that you shared with us. Well, look, Dr. Laybourne, you are amazing. Uh, my favorite PhD student, of course, <laughs> just to be you. transparent, and you said mentor earlier, but you know, you got your PhD at University of Maryland. I continue to be so, so proud of you and everything you do. You are the epitome of resiliency and grit. And if anybody needs to know how to do it, how to overcome stuff, how to make your dreams come true, they need to listen to your show and they need to talk to you. So just continue to fly. Thank you so much. I receive all this love, but you know, I am only following the footsteps of my mentor, Dr. Ray. I'm only following that roadmap that you left, not only for me, but for all of your students and for the people that you come in contact with. So when you talked about, you know, scaling up and looking at how you can make this impact, not only in the community level, not only in research, but also state and federal policies, right? That is the model that I'm following as well so we can make these impacts for positive social change for all of us yes indeed well thank you for having me on all right thank you Wow, it was so good to have dr. Rayshawn Ray here with us today I mean so much 
important information so relevant to everything that has been happening, everything that we are still experiencing. And I mean, I know that I have had so many of these questions, right? So around thinking about police-civilian interactions and really trying to understand what it means for these calls to defund the police, what that would look like in our own communities. Again, you know, we've seen here in Memphis calls for defunding the police, a lot of attention to the police budget, right? Especially in context of other city services and what that might mean, again, moving forward, as well as thinking thinking about what it would look like to reimagine policing in Memphis and what role we all as citizens might have in that reimagination. So it's so good to hear Dr. Ray's insights into that, especially given all of his research around police trainings. I'm thinking here specifically about implicit bias trainings and how important it is to have that buy-in um, of complete departments and additionally, of even other aspects within whether it is a police department or other types of companies, right? So especially over this summer, I know there's been so much attention to implicit bias trainings, not only thinking about in context of police departments, but also in other realms as well, well whatever businesses, um, institutions, academic institutions, all the different realms of society, thinking about how we can be more attentive to how race and racism is impacting everything that we do. So it was so great to hear his thoughts on implicit bias trainings and really to understand what the research has shown us on how important it is, not just to have this one-off training, right, but to really incorporate it into the entire culture of how we do business within our own fields. Um, another important part of today's conversation was, of course, thinking about coronavirus. I know coronavirus is in is on all of our minds, especially as we're going into this holiday season and our desire to, you know, have something that seems normal to be able to gather with our friends and family and to be able to really have some sort of holiday experience um, that we are used to having. But of course, here in the Mid-South, we've seen, as well as around the rest of the country, continued rising cases of coronavirus. So really, our attention has to be on thinking about what we can do to mitigate coronavirus and community spread um, within, you know, this city of Memphis, which I know is such a big part of our lives. It is our home. It is the place that, you know, we love. So it was great to think about, you know, what coronavirus and these holidays might look like as far as changes in behavior. And as Dr. Ray mentioned, even thinking about what uh, the development of a vaccine might mean, right? And what we uh, will do as far as will we take the vaccine <laughs> or not, and how that is all rooted in our approaches to health, our experiences in the healthcare, um, with healthcare professionals, and how much um, 
history and treatment or mi medical mistreatment of especially marginalized, racialized, marginalized communities, how that then impacts how we're thinking about health and our interactions um, with healthcare as well. So, so many important topics that we were able to cover today. And I hope that our conversation together with Dr. Rayshawn Ray really illuminated um, some of these very um, hard hitting and very personal topics, um, all, all circumstances and issues that have really defined 2020 and will continue to define our experience um, here in our own city, but also in the nation as well. Now, every Saturday at 9 a.m. when we get together, I want to end us off on a positive note. And today in talking with Dr. Rayshawn Ray, I think something that he really highlighted, um, of course, thinking about those coping mechanisms, which it was so great to be able to hear um, some of his coping mechanisms. I know, um, I know I can definitely use all the coping mechanisms <laughs> for all this uncertainty uh, that 2020 has brought, but also thinking about how important it is to tell folks, um, give them their flowers, right? You've probably heard about that. Give folks their flowers while they're here and really acknowledge all the ways that they are important to you and all of the great things that they are doing. You know, we often take for granted that people know how awesome they are and how much they mean to us. But I know for me, if 2020 has taught me anything, you know, time is, time is so short. So definitely tell folks how much they mean to you and continue to you know spread that love around y'all it was so good for us to spend our saturday morning together thanks so much for tuning in i can't wait to have you back here next saturday and every saturday morning at 9 a.m for let's grab coffee where again i will be joined by experts from across the country who are really examining all these pressing social issues and our common curiosities if you are curious about the world around us hey join me back here every saturday morning and if you are loving this music this is memphis own marco pave and i just absolutely love this song the instrumental version obviously of no time and such a great memphis flavor for our time together this is let's grab coffee with sana and you're tuned in to wyxr 91.7